This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Dozens of residents of a Parkdale apartment building are facing eviction for using air conditioning. Some have lived in the building for decades and say using their AC has never been a problem before. The property manager, Myriad Management, says they, the property managers, are not doing anything illegal and they've given the tenants the option of paying for running those window units. Now, even the mayor has weighed in saying the city, in the situation we're in, can't have evictions based on what he refers to as a a small item, almost a loophole like the cost of running an air conditioner. Now, this comes as we are expecting another heat event on Friday, Canada Day, and it opens a larger question. Shouldn't the government mandate maximum temperatures in rentals the same way it enforces minimum temperatures in the winter. What do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to welcome NDP MPP Butila Karpache, Councillor Paula Fletcher, and Dania Majid, who is a staff lawyer at the Advocacy Centre for Tenants Ontario. Uh, ladies, women, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank, Thank you for inviting us. Okay, let us begin with uh, MPP Carpoche. So how were you first made aware of this situation and and how have you been trying to help these tenants? No, um, so my office was contacted by tenants who live in the building at 130 Jameson. And uh, we also learned that this was uh, a situation uh, in terms of the eviction notices uh, being sent uh, to approximately 50 tenants, uh, which is, you know, a large number. And uh, as well that the tenancy notice, I mean, the eviction notice uh, basically said that their tenancy was being terminated early because tenants have ACs in their units. This being a very serious health and safety issue, uh, you know, basically um, got us to act very quickly because we wanted to ensure that one, uh, tenants could uh, continue using their ACs in order to stay cool, and two, that uh, the eviction notices would be withdrawn by the landlord. Uh Dania Majid, uh, does it depend on what the leases say? I'm told that the leases say that, uh, or some of the leases say that tenants cannot operate any appliance not supplied by the landlord. Or is there some kind of right people have to run these units? Yeah, so you are right. It uh, depends on two things, what the lease itself says and whether there are any uh, terms within the lease um, that outline the air conditioning use and whether or not the electricity is uh, being covered by the rent or is it an additional charge um, that a tenant pays in addition to the rent. Uh, so that is the starting point in determining, you know, the legality of, um, you know, the units or whether or not the landlord could be uh, asking for additional charges. However, based on what we have uh, heard uh, in the media reports, it sounds like uh, many tenants have had air conditioning units that have been used um, and have been running in their units for years. Um, so, there might be, you know, an argument to be made that uh, the landlord was aware that these units have been in place and have been running upwards of, you know, I've heard nine to 13 years. Um, they had knowledge, they did not object, and therefore the tenants might have uh, ground to say that they had implied consent from the landlord to have those units, or it's too late for them to enforce the rights at this point. Uh, I gather it's a new property manager. 
Uh, that's my understanding, and um, that doesn't really make a difference at the end of the day um, because you know the property. You know, when a new property manager steps in, they they are taking the contracts that have been made with the tenants, the arrangements that have been made with the tenants as is. Paula Fletcher, I was going back uh, to see what was going on with this idea of mandating a maximum temperature. And it took me back to 2017. And that is three years before the pandemic. And there was a motion about this. It was put forward by Josh Matlow, seconded by the mayor. And, you know, we've had this heat dome experience in BC that killed 600 people. This has come up before. Uh, what happened with that? Uh, that really is, unfortunately, the city can't do that. We, um, I don't want to pass the buck, but everything under the residential tenancies, everything is a provincial matter. So the city had asked the province, please take into account that with climate change and as you just said, these heat domes, we actually need to have a maximum temperature now, not just a minimum. Because throughout the year, in September, October, in the spring, it's very hot, unlike it used to be maybe 20 or 30 years ago. So this is, this is really a, a on-the-agenda situation now. Well, um, Councillor Fletcher, the province did mandate, after it was brought to their attention, that you need to have AC in nursing homes. Not all the nursing homes have complied, but a lot of them have. Uh, are, do you know the state of discussion about this, or is this something that just kind of got dropped? Uh, it's, I think it might have gotten dropped, and of course, with the pandemic, uh, focuses on nursing homes and conditions there. And imagine not having any air conditioning and the temperature might be 26, 27, 28 inside. Um, this uh, is very worrisome that uh, landlords has given 50 eviction notices because people are using air conditioning. And um, this does not make any sense whatsoever. It's a mass eviction because people want to stay comfortable. Uh, let's go back to Dania Majid. Now, is this an, I mean, doesn't the, wouldn't the company need more paper? I mean, this is, is this kind of like a warning and they need to have an actual eviction notice, which as we know, can take a very long time to be issued, right? Right. So an eviction, uh, a notice of eviction is not the same as an eviction order. Um, so, if a tenant receives a notice of eviction, they don't need to move out. And instead, they can exercise their uh, legal rights um, within the dispute resolution process. Depending on which notice they are given, there might be an opportunity to correct the issue, um, or they can elect to go to the landlord and tenant board and have the landlord prove their case before an adjudicator. And only at that point, when an adjudicator at the landlord-tenant board issues an eviction order, you know, can an eviction actually be enforced? Well, yeah, and that we, we know all about that. You know, a lot of cases are, are the opposite. You have tenants who don't pay their rent and wreck their apartments, and the poor landlords can't get rid of them. Uh, so, I mean, uh, MPP Carpoche, I mean, I'm assuming that if the tenants go this route, you, they can stay in their apartments for a very long time. Well, um you know, obviously, as was just mentioned, the landlord is not forcible, like cannot enforce this eviction. Uh, they need to have an order from the LTB, the Landlord and Tenant Board, and that does take a bit of time. However, uh, in the notice, and I've seen some of the notices that uh, tenants have received, uh, it says very clearly that the tenant has to move out by a certain date. Now, of course, the tenant doesn't have to move out, but it says that on the notice, um, you know, which creates obviously a lot of stress and panic, uh, which uh, makes the tenants wonder if that is something that has to be done by law. Um, and the time period uh, is very, very short. So, for example, at one of the notices that I saw, it said that the tenant had to move out by July 7th, which is next week. Yeah, next week. Yeah. And so 
you know, um, I think what the landlords often, many landlords often do is uh, make it seem like there is no option uh, other than to move out or in this uh, particular case, sign a new lease. Uh, with, you know, new sets of conditions. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the tenant was also not given a copy of what the new lease would look like. Um, so I think that uh, there are many, many things going on in here uh, in this particular situation. Uh, we are, it's, it's, it's the kind of things that is very common uh, across the city. Uh, but most importantly, again, one of the things that they're trying to use is the fact that uh, tenants are using these ACs, uh, and the landlord is using that as the grounds for the eviction notice. Is this just a, a ploy to get them out so they can charge uh, much higher rents? Well, that is what I suspect is also happening because, uh, you know, many of the tenants, and in fact, the tenants who received the notices are mostly tenants who have lived in the building for a long period of time, uh, some 40 years. One has lived there for 50 years. Uh, so you can imagine most of them are seniors, uh, and uh, they have used their ACs for decades with it ever being an issue. And now all of a sudden, uh, they have received a notice saying they're not allowed to use it. You know, it begs the question, what has changed? Uh, and I suspect that it is because under the Residential Tenancies Act, there is a loophole uh, where landlords are allowed to increase rents with no cap whatsoever when a unit is vacated. And, uh, you know, this loophole is called vacancy decontrol. It's important to remember it. this wasn't always the case. It was a loophole created under Premier Mike Harris. And successive governments, we've had five governments now, 13 housing ministers. It has not been fixed. Um, I tabled legislation in the last session to try and close this loophole, but unfortunately it was voted down by the government. So this loophole exists still, and it is one that is used very often to try and kick tenants out uh, for bogus reasons, for bad faith reasons, uh, simply to jack up rents. And it is very interesting when you look at who has received these notices. It is mostly tenants who have lived there a very long time, which means their rents have increased at a much slower pace. Uh, and the units that they occupy uh, stand to see massive rent increases. Councillor Fletcher, uh, are you aware of similar situations in your ward? I have one a couple of years ago, and uh, MPP Chapman and I sent a letter to some larger landlords um, asking them to reconsider the air conditioning issue because of the heat. But what I do have in my ward is something similar to what Patil is talking about, which are what we call rent evictions, and, and that's just getting people out. It's very suspect that there's a new owner and that they've given 50 eviction notices to long-term tenants. And as she points out, they have a probably paying less rent because there's been a gradual rent increase over the year. So sometimes folks are buying apartment buildings and then they want to get all of the long-term tenants out in order to be able to jack up the rent. They, they chart up the apartment and then they, instead of $1,000 a month, it's, it's 2000 or instead of $1,200 a month, it's 3000 and it's very terrifying. Uh, I'm really concerned about this situation. I'm very concerned that they have notices that say you have to be out by such a date. And they've never even been to the landlord and tenant board. It's very intimidating. Uh, imagine if somebody came to your house, if you own your house, and say, okay, you have to be out by July 7th. Um, and you had very little recourse. You hadn't had a proper a proper hearing. So this is, I believe, something more than just the air conditioning. It's an attempt to get these apartments back in order to uh, put new tenants in at a much higher rent. Uh, Daniel Majid, one of the things I, I have a question about. So uh, what the landlord has said in a statement was that they've given people the chance to, quote, remedy the situation, which is to pay for the cost of air conditioning. But 
does that involve a whole new lease or is that just uh, the only thing that's added? Like, would they suddenly say, oh, and by the way, your rent's doubled? Yeah, I think it, it really depends, um, again, on the, you know, the circumstance, the individual, what their lease currently looks like. And it sounds like the leases amongst the tenants look a little bit different. Um, so it would depend on that. And an agreement could be added just specifically on um, the cost of air conditioning to an existing lease. Um I would be very, very wary if a landlord approaches a tenant to sign something new that involves additional fees. And if a tenant is in that situation, they should seek additional legal advice because if they set a new lease, they could set a new price for the rent and additional terms. So you might be opening yourselves up to a can of worms uh, if a new lease is um, offered. Uh, if there's an attachment that goes to a lease on the air conditioning um Charges, for instance, um, you know, a tenant should be very wary what that charge looks like on a month on a month to month basis. It can't be a lump sum amount that covers the whole summer. It, it has to be a reasonable monthly amount that covers the actual cost of the additional electricity needed to run that unit. And Toronto Hydro and other uh, hydro organizations or agencies will have those guidelines for how much an appliance uh, uses um, electricity. So. Uh, you know, if you're getting um, a request for an additional hundred dollars a month, you know, to you know to run the electricity, uh, the air conditioning unit, um, that should be a red flag that the landlord is either trying to, is you know trying to gouge the tenant or push the tenant out in order to, um, as as mentioned before, to re-rent the unit at a much higher uh, cost. And we are seeing this pushing out, you know, across the province, not just in the city of Toronto. Um, and it and vacancy decontrol is one of the biggest drivers of the loss of affordable housing in the province. Um, Butila Carpoche, I know you have to go. What would you like to leave us with before we continue with Councillor Fletcher and Danya Majid? Um, I would like to urge the landlords to withdraw the eviction notices. And, uh, you know, I call on Premier Ford. Uh, and the Conservative government to regulate maximum temperatures in Ontario and to close this loophole, vacancy decontrol, once and for all under the Residential Tenancies Act, so that we do not find ourselves in these kinds of situations again, where tenants, um, mostly seniors, low-income families, um, are facing these kinds of stressful situations and having to uh, choose between staying cool or risking their health and safety. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, uh, MPP Butila Carpache. Uh, people out there, I'd like to hear from you if you have an issue with uh, how hot it gets in your apartment or the apartment or of a loved one. And again, in nursing homes, this became a really big issue where on top of Every other terrible thing that was happening, people were just sweltering. So the numbers to call, and we have a few minutes left in this segment, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. So should there be a legislated um, maximum temperature. There's a legislated m- minimum temperature. It's it's 20 Celsius in the winter. Uh, people have suggested 26. I'm not sure how they landed on 26, but uh, whatever it would be. And are you worried for people? You know, when the when when we see these heat domes, you know, we get all these warnings, and and people can actually die. It's it's a very scary situation. Uh, Paula Fletcher, so which government department, which provincial department would be in charge of this? I guess it would be the Municipal Affairs, because I believe they look after the Residential Tenancies Act. Um, getting, getting to the point where we could regulate the maximum temperatures is a goal, but really and truly, what we're talking about here is um, people that have AC and they're being told you can't use it or you have to pay for it or we're kicking you out. And then we're going to give you a new lease that once you have a new lease, as has been pointed out, you can change the rent or you can change other terms. So it's very frightening for everyone that lives in this building. And 
Patil has pointed out, many are seniors, they're low income. The housing frontier is where is the place now people looking to make big money. And there's large kind of corporate conglomerates buying up a lot of apartment buildings. And on this one, I, I really do think that looking behind the curtain, it might be trying to get rid of people in order to raise the rent. But I have no idea what the AC costs would be. It certainly can't be that much. I wouldn't certainly think there should be some negotiation with people that live there before you give them an eviction notice. That just makes common sense. Um, let us take a call from John in Toronto. Hello, John. Uh, hello. Am I on the air now? Yes, you're on the air. Okay, just quickly, I just tuned in a favorite. Um, I look after a senior as a PSW in a building downtown Toronto, uh, in a fairly affluent area of town, and his lease is 1957. I have been harassed around every year around May. You've got to pay extra for this. I said, look, those air conditions air conditioners were installed professionally. And then I often wonder, why does he have this chronic cough? I went outside the building, and the vents from all the dryers in the building are vented, and his bedroom window is sucking in all of the fabric softener poisons. And it's been an ongoing issue with the landlord. And then I found out that I've been living here for 27 years caring for him, but my name isn't on the lease, so I have no rights. I'm a guest, and he's special needs and nonverbal. And I said, I'm not paying the 50 bucks a month extra unless you revent the vents to the dryers. It's an ongoing thing. And, and have they tried to, or do you think they're trying to get him out because it's a 1957 lease? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really quite a dilemma because uh, I looked after his mother. She went from 100, she went to 80 to 100. The aunt went to 104. Um, he's still here. Uh, through compassion, I'm staying with him. But this ongoing fight because his rent is so low. Well, uh, and they're using the air conditioners as a vehicle to get him compromised. But we we can't open the windows because the way the vents are put for the dryer. We're on the fourth floor. And I said to management, I will stand outside the building and do a video when we can see the steam coming out in the wintertime so that if he opens the window, his lungs are compromised. So we persevere and we endure. But, you know you still got to have enough energy at the end of the week to fight these things. Yeah. John, I'm going to let you go, but I'm, I'm going to ask our panelists uh, if they have any advice for you. So um, I'm letting you go, but keep the radio okay. on. Thanks. Uh, uh, Dania Majid or Councillor Fletcher, uh, what would you say to John? I would, I would say he should talk to uh, Daniel or somebody from a legal clinic to find out exactly what, uh, his rights are or his patient's rights are. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, if someone's having uh, legal issues with their landlord, especially those who are vulnerable, you know, speaking to your community legal clinic is a good start. Tenants do have rights. Um, and under the Residential Tenancies Act, a landlord is responsible for ensuring that the, the residential complex is well-maintained, uh, the units inside the um, complex are in a good state of repair and fit for habitation, and that they comply with all the um, health and safety uh, standards. So, you know, we have some tools within the RTA, you know, um, to address these types of conditions. So uh, we also have the Human Rights Code, uh, which provides accommodations for tenants um, who might have disabilities or other conditions uh, within that might need accommodation in their housing. So if the unit itself, you know, there's an argument to be said, if the, if the unit itself is so hot that it's not fit for habitation, then what is the landlord's responsibility? Or the land, we would argue that the landlord does have a responsibility to do something about that temperature. Um, if a person is a senior um, or has, you know, respiratory issues um, and not having an air conditioning makes their um, unit unsafe for them, well, then they might have the ability um, to make a human rights uh, accommodation request under the Human Rights Code to have the landlord provide the uh, pro 
provide a unit, um, an air conditioning unit, or ensure that the unit itself is in at a proper temperature and proper air quality. Um, um, uh, I just like to take thank. Uh, I would just like to take another call from sure. Mary in Toronto. Hi, Mary. Hi. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yes. Hi. We. You know, this is about tenants. And, not, and it hasn't been really mentioned landlords, which were very good to our tenants. And then they still pay you and they're allowed to stay there for as long as they can. How does that work? I mean, really? Well, it's, uh, I've said they're, they're the opposite situations. So yeah. these tenants, uh, you know, if they decide, if they're not intimidated by this, uh, mm-hmm. they would probably be able to stay for quite a while. And it's, it's, uh, that happens with bad apples. But right now we're talking about, uh, the landlord seems to be the bad apple in this one. Mary, thanks <laughs> I, for your call. Mary, uh, Libby, Mary yeah. might be a really good landlord. Well, yeah, uh, and when she finds somebody that's just not paying the rent, I think that's different. I think yeah, some of these people have been in the building for decades. They've been paying their rent regularly. They've been good tenants. All they've been doing is staying cool in the summer. And this new owner, who often very much are not family landlords anymore, they're big corporations. Now they're looking at saying, okay, I'd like to clear this building out. What's my mechanism? And there you go. It is mm-hmm. the... Uh, got to pay for AC and you haven't paid. So I'm trying to get rid of you. It's just as a spiral for tenants. And I think most of these tenants, if not all of them, have been really good tenants throughout the years. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, I think that if that company is worried about its public image, uh, it needs some, you know, crisis public relations because they've even had the mayor come out um, without, you know, knowing all the details. Uh, I, and I, again, I think the larger issue is, is getting some kind of regulation of a maximum temperature because, you know, the, the the prospect of people dying because they're too hot in their apartments is just horrific. We're basically out of time. I'm going to give each of you 20 seconds, starting with Dania Majid. What would you like to leave us with? 20 seconds. Right. Um, I, I agree. It is uh, about regulation of temperature, but it is also about the financialization of housing. And this is really probably the driver behind this story. So in addition to those regulations around heat, we also need to get rid of the vacancy decontrol loophole uh, to make sure that we have stable rents and tenants are protected from bad faith evictions. Councillor Fletcher? Ditto to what she's just said. It really is about Big corporations buying up apartment blocks, wanting to make maximum profits in places where people have been good tenants, paying well over the years, and many places that have low-income tenants. We have a housing crisis. There's, this, this just doesn't all add up. Okay, thank you so much, Councillor Paula Fletcher and Dania Majid. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we will be following up on this as needed, and we're going to take a break. And when we come back, Peter McKay on the burgeoning scandal involving the RCMP commissioner and the inquiry into that horrific mass shooting in Nova Scotia when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Did the Trudeau Liberals try to use the inquiry into the worst mass shooting in our history to bolster their agenda? Did they pressure the RCMP commissioner to re- release information that would help that effort? Well, another damning document has emerged in this simmering scandal surrounding the Nova Scotia mass shooting inquiry. And Commissioner Brenda Lucky has doubled down on her denials. And people, does this remind you of any previous liberal scandal? SNC-Lavalin, maybe? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Peter McKay, who is a former Minister of Justice and Attorney General, former Minister of National Defense, among others, and a native Nova Scotian. Peter, thank you so much for being with us. 
My pleasure, Libby. This is a, a sobering subject to be sure and certainly is being followed very closely by people here in Nova Scotia, but around the country, as you've laid it out. It's, uh, it's very troubling, first and foremost, for the victims who are in the midst of getting this information through the Mass Casualties Commission, the Mass Murder Commission, to be clear. And it's also a, a very you know, sad day today. They're uh, commemorating the loss of one of their own, that is the RCMP. Uh, Heidi Stevenson, her memorial is being held today here in Nova Scotia. Um, so uh, for people, uh, what makes this uh, sort of, you know, for, for people who are not involved, uh, why is this something that we should be really concerned about in terms of the interference? Well, in simple terms, the RCMP commissioner is the, the head of the RCMP, obviously, Brenda Lucky, and through disclosures that came out at this inquiry, so evidence under under sworn testimony, it would appear that, uh, that she uh, relayed to officers here in Nova Scotia, firstly, that she was upset that more information wasn't made public about the caliber of the rifles. There were two rifles and two pistols involved in these mass murders. And she had communicated to both the communications officer and the chief superintendent in Nova Scotia that she wanted more information out there in the public about these weapons um, because she'd had a conversation with the public safety minister at the time, Bill Blair, and presumably this had also come from the prime minister's office. And this was all in, in furtherance of liberal legislation to bring in stricter gun regulations. And so there's a, a very partisan, and I would call it poison, political angle to all of this, where in the aftermath of the worst shooting in Canadian history, um, the politics of this were front and center, uh, even trumping an ongoing active investigation. Now, one thing that has to be said right off the bat, Libby, is that the weapons uh, appear to have come in from the United States, making them illegal. And so there is no connection here between a stricter gun registration having any deterrent or any sort of public safety aspect. This was politics at its worst. Why wouldn't the local RCMP people want to release that information? How was it important to keep that under wraps? Well, it's not so much that it was important to keep it under wraps as the investigation itself was ongoing. They were trying to track where these weapons had come from, who was involved, how they had made it into the hands of the killer. And so putting the caliber of the rifle out there and making it appear as if somehow the, the weapon itself was to blame was not their priority. It, it was not part of their communications and tracking down the, the weapons and the source ha- had nothing to do with the, the legislation that, quite frankly, had been sitting there on the books for some time. And so it just is beyond acceptable and strange that the commissioner of the RCMP would be pushing this political agenda, or so it appears. What is, of course, contradicting uh, what the commissioner herself is saying and the minister is saying is that this was all recorded, as police officers tend to do in in investigations, in notes that have now been subpoenaed and brought forward in the the actual inquiry. And so, as the old saying goes, somebody here is telling the truth and somebody is lying. And the officers closest to the investigation who are testifying and who are providing their notes, I, I would suggest, are doing so out of a sense of obligation, closer proximity to the actual investigation, and doing so under oath. The the second the civilian communications officer talked about um, Commissioner Lucky being extremely belittling on the phone. Um, how does that play into things? I mean, she said uh, Commissioner Lucky said, "Well, she was really angry at the way uh, things, uh, you know, unraveled or never raveled." Yeah, she she referred um, Lucky. Commissioner referred very directly to pressure that came from the public safety minister uh, to release the firearms details in the aftermath of the shooting. And the words that I recall her her using, Libby, were she was disgusted, she was appalled, she felt it was inappropriate and unprofessional and belittled. 
So those are pretty, you know, harsh words coming from, you know, in a chain of command, a subordinate to say, but in the circumstances, and, and let's never, ever lose sight of what happened here. This yeah. is horrific. Uh, and the victim's families, of course, still two years on struggling with, uh, with what happened and trying to understand and get answers. And again, I say for emphasis, to think that the government was so concerned about a public relations exercise around their proposed gun legislation. And, and let's be clear, these are illegal weapons. Any classification on these weapons would not have made a difference. It would not have stopped them from getting into the hands of this killer. If a person is smuggling weapons into the country, if they know they're illegal, they're not going to line up at the mall or fill out paperwork and register them or the police are not going to know that they have them. And so this has been part of a, a liberal government agenda for a very, very long time, going back to their long gun registration, which again, doesn't target criminals, doesn't target smugglers or gangbangers on the streets of Toronto. It specifically targets hunters, collectors, people who do fill out the paperwork and comply with the law. And so there's, it, it's perverse how this, uh, this, this priority by the commissioner, the public safety minister, and the government seems to have now become front and center in what really should be about operational exercises, trying to improve public safety in the aftermath, not only of what happened in Portapik, but Mayor Thorpe, Moncton. We have examples of recommendations from inquiries that still haven't been acted upon. Oh, and for so sure. That has a very, very deleterious and and detrimental effect to public confidence in the RCMP and and in these inquiries to actually get answers. Well, I mean, you know, given what actually happened, I mean, there seems to be a general feeling that the that the police on the ground in Nova Scotia really seriously messed up. And maybe that's uh, that was a factor in the belittling conversation, is it not? Well, that could be, but it seems that the conversation uh, was focused more on a an anger and a frustration expressed by the commissioner that they weren't putting enough emphasis on publicly communicating the type of weapon, which you know these are my words were were intended to scare the public to make them more likely to support liberal gun legislation, as opposed to communicating properly, finding out what actually happened, having a successful investigation, tracking these weapons if they came from the United States. But as you said in your opening, Libby, there is a, a trend around truthfulness and public communication. We saw what happened in the SNC-Lavalin case. Again, blatant interference from the Prime Minister's office with the Minister of Justice in trying to cut a deal for a, a, a company SNC-Lavalin accused of major corruption and trying to give them a deferred prosecution agreement. We saw misdirection and miscommunication around the Wee scandal. This also goes back to years ago where a reporter alleged that the prime minister had groped her. And the, the telling words used then and at other times since were it was experienced differently. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's baffling, that type of language. Experienced differently. Um, is the RCMP commissioner, is she going to lose her job over this? I believe that's very likely. And, and what about... As the inquiry in Ottawa uh, at uh, parliamentary committees continues to probe this, and as it becomes clearer and clearer that she was doing political bidding as opposed to assisting and supporting her own officers on the ground here in Nova Scotia. And, and what about Bill Blair? Well, let's not forget for a moment that Bill Blair himself is a former police chief from the largest municipality in the country. Uh, one would have thought that he too would have had a little bit more concern for the actual operational details as opposed to the communications exercise of propping up and forwarding uh, liberal gun legislation. So yes, I think he is uh, he's on the firing line too, pardon the pun. Mm hmm. Uh, and, you know, how how is this uh, in your view? Uh, what happens next in this? 
Well, I think there is still a lot of information to come out in the inquiry itself. As you said a moment ago, Libby, it sheds a lot of light on, unfortunately, the way that this response by the RCMP was not only handled in its uh, aftermath when it was first reported, but the way that it was communicated. Uh, Shortcomings are becoming more and more apparent every day at an operational level. The Recommendations that I mentioned earlier from previous inquiries into tragedies don't appear to have been fully adopted and uh, and brought into into force. And you know the very reason for the RCMP having jurisdiction over rural communities in this country is now being questioned, and whether some of these provinces, uh, including Alberta, parts of British Columbia, they're now looking to stand up their own provincial departments or municipal uh, policing to replace the RCMP. That shakes Canadians, it should, to the very foundation about the competence of their national police force. That's a problem. Okay, before we go, I'm going to take a call from Daryl in Toronto. Hello, Daryl. Hi, how's everyone today? Fine, go ahead, you're on the air, you have a question. What I'm not understanding is how would the release of this information have really significantly affected the investigation in any way, shape, or form? And like, what's the problem with having released it? Well, I think... Or wanting it released. And it also, it sounds to me like the whole kerfuffle over this is as much political as they're claiming the, you know, the, the, the agenda of the government was. Uh, Daryl, I'm going to let you go, and you Thank can you. listen to Peter's uh, response. Go ahead, Peter. So, so Daryl, the response is that that is an operational decision taken by the RCMP. I'm not sure what was in the commission, not the commissioner's mind, the, the superintendent's mind in suggesting that they uh, they did not want to disclose that information. Perhaps they had leads, perhaps they had individuals in the United States that were they were working with to try to track the origins of the gun. But the, the, the issue becomes, why was the commissioner doing this type of, of questioning and, in fact, browbeating of her own senior officers in Nova Scotia to get this information out. Well, it's quite clear to them, those who were receiving this this uh, tongue lashing from the commissioner, that she was doing so at the bequest of, uh, of Bill Blair and the government because of the legislation, because they wanted to get the public riled up about the need for stricter gun laws. That is what is the issue. And it's it's hard to use the the the, uh, the RCMP in Nova Scotia's words. It was inappropriate, unprofessional, belittling, and I would add unhelpful to the actual investigation. And it it crosses that line between the independence of the RCMP, particularly in their investigations and, and their important work in protecting the public. Uh, Peter, we're out of time on this. Uh, what will be the next shoe to drop? Well, that's hard to say. I, I think you're, uh, you're hearing testimony um, continue to this very day. And what, what I see, unfortunately, is a lot of dissatisfaction on the part of the victims to, to get to the root of uh, why the information wasn't put out to the public sooner about the actual jeopardy that people were in. And in rural parts of this province, um, where police are not moments away, people can take actions themselves to protect themselves. That's not suggesting that they uh, arm themselves, but it's suggesting they at least take themselves out of harm's way. And when they don't know uh, what to do or where the police are or where the potential threat may exist, that uh, that exposes them to more danger. And, and I think that's what a lot of the uh, the inquiry is now focusing on is how this was communicated to the public so inadequately and how the RCMP themselves seem to be in disarray in their response. Mm. Peter McKay, thank you so much for a very clear explanation. Appreciate it. Thank you, Libby. Bye-bye. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, hundreds of millions of dollars or more than a hundred million dollars in uncollected taxes. Who's paying the price when we come back? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, released a report that shows that between 2014 and 2018, Canadians failed to pay $111.2 billion in taxes. More specifically, individual Canadians did not pay between $41.9 and $52.8 billion in personal income tax, and corporations did not pay between $23 and $36 billion over the four years. And this, after the agency is going after a million people for CERB overpayments. These are people who collected CERB while they were on disability or other uh, other uh, wrongful payments like that. So uh, what do you think? Uh, these are very big numbers, and we will try to get to the bottom of how this happened. The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 740. And now I'm joined by Jay Goldberg, Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hi, Jay. Great to be with you. So how how does this happen? How much of this is because of offshore accounts? Well, we don't know exactly how much of it is because of offshore accounts, but we do know that there are certainly cases where uh, people directly aren't paying their taxes, their businesses are not. Because uh, you can certainly file with the CRA and then decide uh, not to pay the taxes and pay a penalty. But the amount of money we're talking about, over $23 billion a year, that's a huge number. And I think it's important to Canadians for, for a few reasons. But most importantly, you know, that's a lot of money that could be otherwise uh, allowing the government to have more revenue, which could lead to lowering taxes on Canadians writ large. Uh, if you're talking about $23 billion a year, you could cut the uh, harmonized sales tax by over 2% a year, uh, and you'd come out even there. So it's a, it's a lot of uh, missing money, and uh, you know it's leading, in some cases, to the government to pursue higher taxes. So w- what I'm trying to get at is, how do you call it missing money? Is it tax evasion? I- is it tax loopholes? Is it... Uh, hiding assets, uh, you know, in the Caribbean or whatever. So uh, what the government has said is that it has to do with tax debt, which is one of the the, the uh, things I was indicating. Uh, if people are bankrupt, if businesses are bankrupt, uh, or if they simply can't pay, then they simply don't pay. Uh, and then some of it, yes, is offshore. I think the government is saying that several billion dollars has to do with money that's offshore. But all of this is to say, uh, as you said, uh, you know, the government's coming after a bunch of people who accidentally got a little bit of extra CERB money, but now we're seeing uh, corporations potentially with billions and billions of dollars uh, not paying in taxes. And all of this does is increase the tax burden on everybody else who follows the rules. Uh, as far as I know, you don't simply not pay the CRA. They'll come after you unless you file for bankruptcy, which I guess is a legal process. Well, there's certainly that, but one of one of the other routes is if, for example, you're self-employed, uh, you can still do your taxes every year, indicate to the government uh, how much you owe, and then simply not pay it, uh, and then you would be charged interest on that missing money. So the CRA would come after you, but that that's uh, one of the ways that it could be done. Uh, most Canadians have money directly taken off their paychecks to go to income taxes, but if anyone is self-employed or runs a business, uh, then they have to, uh, you know, file their own taxes and set aside that money on their own, which in some cases clearly isn't happening. Yeah, but I, I, I still don't get. I mean, I've heard stories of, you know, you don't want the CRA on your case. Uh, I, I mean, it's hard to imagine you simply don't pay. So the CRA, these fell through the cracks. They didn't notice. Well, it wouldn't necessarily fall through a crack. Some of it has to do with, um, again, if individuals file their taxes, uh, indicate that they're not able to pay, come up with some kind of potential payment plan, and don't follow it. 
you would be charged interest. You would not get other benefits, such as the CPP, for example. Uh, those would be clawed back. But there are definitely cases where people uh, do go a period of time without paying their taxes. But I do think the the bulk of the focus here definitely should be on the money that the the government's not collecting from 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 money being sent offshore, and that's a heck of a lot of money. And what it means is higher taxes for Canadians. Uh, what do you think of, you know, the government seems to be, or the CRA, which is not the gov- government, it's independent. They're going after uh, what I would call as small, you know, small overpayments. They have people like somebody who mistakenly got some CERB when they were on disability. Uh, so they're going after that. You know, why do you figure they're going after these small things as opposed to big things? Well, I think that's one of the things that's going to outrage many Canadians. Uh, you know, if the government overpaid in many cases, and we're talking about CERB, there was an extra $2,000 payment that happened at the beginning. Uh, we know that about a million Canadians uh, were, according to the government, overpaid. But yeah, we're talking about amounts. Uh, like $2,000. And you're, again, you are talking about people who were potentially on disability, but at minimum, people who lost their jobs uh, and weren't working for a period, and obviously money was tight. So it's really questionable, these, the government's priorities, the CRA's priorities, if they go, if they're failing to go after, you know, big companies that are hiding money offshore, but they are going after Canadians for a mistake that, frankly, the government made. It was the government that made these overpayments. Uh, they made them across the board to hundreds of thousands of people, um, and people took those payments expecting that it was part of the it was part of the program. So, you know, these are all the concerns. Is it just that it's easier to go after uh, you know people who don't have fancy lawyers and tax advisors and whatever? Well, that may very well be the case. You know, people are just getting letters in the mail or emails from the CRA that they're, you know, owing $2,000. I think a lot of everyday Canadians, um, certainly I would, would be very, um, you know, uh, frustrated but also concerned if you're getting a letter from the CRA. Uh, in this case, if you're talking about people who are, you know, constantly evading taxes or evading taxes for a long time, as you said, they probably have lawyers. Uh, they're probably not nearly as concerned with uh, their credit rating or uh, what's going to happen indirectly. So uh, definitely, um, but I think that it's uh, deeply concerning for any Canadian who gets that letter in the mail. And so I, the government may figure that these people are more likely to pay it back, but clearly they're not focusing on the right group of people. Okay. Jay Goldberg, what would you like to leave us with? Well, what I'd like to leave you with is that, you know, Canadians should definitely think about if we're talking $23 billion a year, that's a huge amount of money that could otherwise go to tax cuts or, or improve government services and things like healthcare. And so we absolutely should get on our politicians to make sure that they're collecting the tax revenue that is in the system uh, that's supposed to be collected uh, so that individual Canadians can get a break while we're facing such high inflation. Okay. Jay Goldberg, thank you so much for that. Thank you. Okay, people, that is all the time we have for today. We'll be back here tomorrow with our Tune Into the Town panel as we slide into the long weekend. See you tomorrow. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.